Welcome to the Painless Podcast. It's Chris Hartwig from Painless Networking here. Thanks so much for listening this week. If you're new, welcome. The Painless Podcasts are simply about connecting with and getting to know great people in sports and event marketing. Really, really excited to have you listen to my conversation with today's guest, Dan Megala, co-founder and Chief Innovation Officer at PCG Sports Desk. You may remember Dan's co-founder, Josh Kreitzler, was a great panelist at April's Painless Sports Marketing Leadership Session. Both of these guys are, are just great people. They've done some great work. Uh, and, and here, Dan and I didn't even have time to talk about some of their best-known ideas, like uh, Stephen Colbert as Donnie Franks for the Cubs and uh, Vienna Beef, or uh, changing White Sox first pitch time to 7.11 p.m. for a sponsor, 7.11. Some good stuff. Uh, we talk about a bunch of other things that Dan's worked on, though, that I think you'll find very interesting. You can also find Dan online at on Twitter at Dan Megala. Megala, by the way, is M-I-G-A-L-A. And uh, company site or handle is at PCG Sports Desk with the website of pcgsportsdesk.com. All right, let's get it rolling. June 2nd, recorded at PCG's River North headquarters, downtown Chicago. Let's get connected with Dan Megala. Welcome to the Painless Podcast, Dan. Great to uh, be here. Thanks for having me. Well, let's, let's jump back in the, the painless time machine and zip back to the young Dan Megala. When, when did you, how, how far do we need to go back to talk about when you realized that you wanted to be in sports? Uh, I can uh, pinpoint uh, maybe where the seed was planted. Um, and uh, and then fast forward to actually when I when I turned a career into it, uh, I grew up right outside of Chicago in a in a great family in a town, Schaumburg, Illinois, about 20 minutes outside of the city. I loved baseball, and I loved writing letters to baseball players. And my mom would edit them, and she would teach me. Um, the value of, I'd say, selflessness to selfishness and don't send a letter to a baseball player asking for something for you. Ask them a question about themselves and use a self-addressed stamp envelope, all these kind of lessons. So I got all these great responses from George Brett, Cal Ripken Jr., and in those days, that was probably the equivalent of a retweet, right, of getting a, a, a letter, and mm -hmm. I got addicted to it, and one of the things, two things came out of that. One was um, my mom stopped paying for stamps and envelopes because it got out a little hand. I used to go through the tops, uh, 792 cards, and write each player a letter. So she encouraged me to go door to door uh, and offer to mow people's lawns in exchange for stamps and a box of envelopes. So I did that, and, and then I, I said why I wanted to mow your lawn. So I learned salesmanship, <laughs> entrepreneurism, door-to-door -door sales, right, um, at an early age. But one of the things that was really interesting when I'd get the letters back from the players was they would include a lot of their promotional materials, a, um, you know, a pocket schedule from the L.A. Dodgers, a right. pocket schedule from the Houston Astros. And I kind of got really curious about 
what a fan appreciation day was like. What a why does Seven um, Up have their logo on this helmet that came from you know the uh, Montreal Expos, whatever it might be. So I kind of got really curious about that. I started collecting, in addition to baseball cards, memorabilia of giveaways. Probably at age eight. Um, so I didn't realize it at the time, but I was being influenced and curious yeah. uh, to that. And then I studied journalism um, as my major at the University of Missouri. And I had the great fortune of meeting um, a, a really a legend in our business, Roger Valdeseri, who at the time was the SID for Notre Dame. And really, um, uh, for, the, for the college listeners, uh, he was the founder of NACMA, the Collegiate Marketers Association. And he really encouraged me, if I was going to be a successful journalist, to learn the marketing side of our business. So um, I took a internship with the Kane County Cougars, um, learned ticket sales, sponsorship, and I think I really uh, merged my journalism storyteller mentality to the business side. And I like to say I take a reporter's mentality to solving a sports business problem. Um, and then was fortunate enough, my first job out of college um, was with Team Marketing Report, which prior to Sports Business Journal, I think was the, um, you know, the, the most well-known national sports marketing publication. And at age 21, um, I essentially really got paid to learn. The beat that I covered was what happens in the box office, what happens in the CFO's office. Um, and I got incredible relationships across all four sports leagues, college brands, and was really paid to learn, you know, very similar mm -hmm. to just having a sit down. So um, I learned fundamentals of what works with the Toledo Mudhens also works with the Los Angeles Lakers. And that was just a phenomenal entry, um, both in terms of relationships, kind of staying true to that eight-year-old kid and, and having that selflessness to take the time to listen and learn. And then selfishly, I just got a wealth of knowledge, um, you know, during that time. And did you, did you think when you were graduating, were you saying, uh, you know, I was looking for this journalism were you thinking you, this would lead to a, a journalism career, or were you thinking at that point, too, that you were getting into more of the business angle? Um, you know, well, a couple thoughts. There was, uh, you, you don't really have a vision, I think, at that point. Uh, you know, under the language of my parents, you need to get a job with benefits, um, was, uh, was quote unquote the most, you know, that was part of it. Uh, you know, I, I think what I learned, we're reflecting is, the value of an open mind on your career path and really finding your sweet spot. Uh, like a lot of my journalism classmates, um, I wanted to be on SportsCenter, I wanted to be Bob Costas, and um, Missouri's got a great program that uh, you know allows students the opportunity to go on that path. What I realized was um, if you listen to the marketplace, you build relationships with people like Roger, you can carve your own path. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happened to me. Uh, and I was fortunate to be around. Um, I had a really great first boss, uh, Sean Brenner, uh, who's now uh, works for the chancellor's office at UCLA. But he was really patient um, and encouraging with me and, and really just kind of helped me understand the business side of it. Uh, intuitively, right, you're a, you're a sports fan. You don't know what you don't know. But in all reality, I didn't know how 
something as common as how is the ticket price established? Um, What does a sponsorship look like? I had to learn all those things, but I was essentially essentially paid to learn um, to be able to do it. And I think that that fearlessness of just going all in and putting as much pride into spending time with the owner of the Toledo Mud Hens as I did with Jerry Jones at that time was um, been a real powerful lesson as, as I've gone now 20 years later. Right. How did you, the people listening to, I think it's, uh, you know, we've known each other for a long time, but just through networking got connected. How, how did you how did networking and everything else, your letter writing and those things play into either landing with Jeff Sedevi and the Kane County Cougars or getting connected with Roger Valdeseri, for example? Yeah, a couple real interesting lesson of if I if I'm looking back on my life in that moment um, that I met Roger Valdeseri, um, the Kentucky Derby. Uh, through Visa's partnership, used to have a sports journalism conference where 100 uh, college students that had an interest in journalism could attend. Visa's interest was they were heavily invested as a brand in uh, horse racing. So they wanted the next generation of journalists to be educated that horse racing was a, a, a premium product you know, on the level of the NBA, NFL, et cetera. So I was lucky enough to get to go. And there were a lot of working journalists that were already at Churchill Downs that week, so we got exposure to some great professionals. And I'll tell you, and it's such a pivotal moment in my life that I was probably not smart enough to recognize, but uh, instinctively I did the right thing. Um, There was a panel, and on that panel, it was Bob Costas, Chris Fowler, and Leslie Visser. Talk about for a 20-year-old kid that wants to pursue them, I was in awe of them. Roger Valdeseri, who I'd never heard of, um, had no context to what a sports information director was, uh, was the one moderating the panel. As you can imagine, those hundred kids ambushed the stage (laughs) right after, and Roger was all alone. You know, everybody went after the star power. So I went up and just introduced myself to him, and he said, do you want to take a walk? And he took the elevator down from the sixth floor at Churchill Downs, and we got to the ground floor, and we walked around the track, the racetrack. And he just asked me about me and my family and what is a dream that I have. And and I had a more, um, you know, in-depth, personal, deep conversation. And I really listened to him. And when I came back up 30 minutes later, Uh, whether I realized it or not, my life and my path changed when I crossed that finish line. You know, got to pass the finish line of the, whatever, the mile and a quarter it is at uh, at Churchill. We were a little slower than Secretariat, for the record. Um, But what I realized was I went back up, and there was still a line of people waiting to talk to Leslie Visser, you know, and 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 the rest of the group. And what I realized is, and used the word you know, even even networking. And I realized the power of developing a relationship with somebody and not just collecting names or, um, you know, that. And I gave Roger a hug. I sent him a thank you card. And sure enough, in those days, I didn't even have, email didn't exist. This is right. 1995. And he called me and he, he was the one that introduced me to the publisher of Team Marketing Report and said, regardless of what you choose to do, you should learn the business side of sport 
and there's this job in Chicago and I got the job and that was that was the start of it and I think about sometimes those little moments of choice um, don't do what everybody else is doing and take the time to be present and I think I was really present even for my stupid 20 year old self um, that had a connection and I'll tell you coming full circle Roger received a lifetime achievement award from the NCAA um, in marketing and, and business and he was unable to uh, attend due to um, one of his grandkids or family commitment and he asked me to accept it oh, wow. and and I just felt um, you know it was just great gratification of at the end of the day it's not about titles or things that you do it's just really the specialness of those relationships and uh, that was a real gratifying and, and wonderful moment how did you do you think that you learned this inquisitiveness well my mom would uh, would say that I loved curious George as a child so maybe I was naturally curious as a result I do think um, you know the the journalism education and some of those tenants that I really use today of be the first to listen the last to speak um, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation um, I'm very disciplined in whether it's a networking event like the great ones that you put on or any kind of social gathering. I always try to ask three questions um, before I talk about myself. So even subconsciously in my mind, um, that's a wonderful way to connect with people. And I think you can find a common connection and a personal touch. So uh, whether that's in traditional sales, um, interaction with somebody sitting next to you on an airplane, at the end of the day, um, anywhere in the world, human connection and the ability to do that uh, is there. Um, I also had the great benefit, I went to graduate school at Ohio University and uh, there's, a, there's a great professor, Doc Higgins, who is kind of like this iconic uh, teacher that's educated some of the sports business finest executives. And he talks a lot about every person you meet in life is an opportunity to learn something if you take the time. So I was really educated with a reporter's mentality and that as an aspiration. So um, if I'm spending 15 minutes with somebody or somebody's talking to me at something, what can I learn from them? Uh, and you know the, the 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 Mark Twain parallel, right? The, you know you you learn more from listening and asking questions than you do about talking. So I'm probably very much programmed that way. And then I, I think I also um, am really committed to just uh, helping you know then when you listen and you connect and you do such a brilliant job of um, you know just being a caretaker of the community that uh, you don't keep score you 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 just try to just genuinely listen and like oh did you know so-and-so also is from your hometown you should meet I'll, I'll introduce you and you know as you go through now 20-year career um, those kind of moments and relationships add up and it's been really special to um, reflect on all of those instances and then you know what's ahead where none of it really feels like work so we just talked a little bit about you know the, your start and that opportunity to kind of get paid to learn with TMR and you did that for a few years and then the next thing was working for the Bears. Is that right? Yeah. That's and how did that come about? This was a, this is a great life lesson that anybody that's listening, in especially in their twenties in this this career, I think is probably the the best advice you'll get all day. Is 
Um, when I was working at Team Marketing Report, we would do a lot of speaking engagements and, and um, MLB uh, winter meetings. Uh, our publisher, Alan Friedman, was going to do a presentation on the best marketing ideas of the year. Um, he had some, um, his, his wife was, um, had some complications with her pregnancy. He needed to stay home. Oh, geez. And I, at 22 or 23, I can't remember, was thrown in to do this presentation in front of 800 people. Uh, the running joke is, I think I went through puberty on stage. Um, and I was like Doogie Howser in like a wrinkled suit. You know, was just a was an interesting moment in my life of like stepping out of your comfort zone. And when I was there, a lot of the executives talked to me. This would have been 1998, December of 98. Um, and you know, they they asked a lot about websites and how teams are going to monetize their digital assets at the time. Some of the questions that were literally asked from heads of marketing from MLB teams were is it okay to put your email address on a business card? Should we put our website on our um, ads? Is, you know, what's going to happen? And I came back, and TMR at the time, we published a lot of books and great reference books of, you know, that uh, would be on naming rights or lease agreements or promotional ideas, et cetera. And I pitched the idea, I really think we should write a book on, um, how teams can monetize their digital assets. Again, 1998, and um, my Alan said, uh, I really don't think anybody's going to ever buy anything through those video game machines, <laughs> but if you want to publish that book and write it, I'm not going to pay you anything extra, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll publish it and we'll see. So I went home, lived with a bunch of buddies in Wrigleyville, and I think we had a softball game that night, like, you know, great Chicagoans do, right? And, and I literally said to them, um, I was mad because I thought I should get paid extra and everything. And one of my roommates that was a journalist too, and he was finding his way in his own career, we were, you know, again, right out of college, he said, wait, you're 22, 23, whatever, and somebody's going to publish a book? You're an idiot. <laughs> if you don't do this. And I, so I quietly started researching it. I got great access to David Stern, Paul Tagliabue, um, a lot of the high-level executives that you become, again, a facilitator of information. And I think I was the only one researching that at the time. Wow. So they were really curious. So six months later, the book came out, um, really fortuitous timing. It was called Selling Sports on the Web. Um, it's laughable to think about now, but there's some timeless lessons in there. And at that time, um, Michael McCaskey, who was the owner of the Bears, was elevated to chairman. Ted Phillips um, was promoted to CEO of the Bears. And I literally got a phone call, and Michael had bought the book. And the Bears had yet to publish their own website, uh, which is now, you know, obviously chicagobears.com. And Michael actually asked if I'd be interested in interviewing for the job. So as a kid that grew up as a Walter Payton on his wall, <laughs> the ability to work then with the owner of the team um, was terrific. So worked it out with Team Marketing Report. They were incredibly supportive. Uh, and I think that was another thing, too, of there are times in your career that you need to 
move on. And, you know, I learned the best way to move on is when you don't have to interview for a job, the job finds you. And, and that was a perfect instance of there, that it was a true collaboration for that next um, step. So uh, I had an office at Hallis Hall and um, got to bring the Bears into the 21st century with launching ChicagoBears.com. And again, that same kind of experience that I learned at Team Marketing Report, I got to sit down with all the different department heads and you know saw a website really as a internal uh, aggregation of communication um, and you know we we did a lot of things that were somewhat remarkable at the time that um, allowed us permission to really kind of think differently mm -hmm. that was um, that was terrific so uh, it was a wonderful time yeah how many other teams had sites up at that point were most of them up some of them up so um the bears were the last nfl team okay <laughs> um to have a website so you had the benefit then of reaching out to all the other teams and learn what they would do differently um and you know that ability to do it and you know it's interesting i, I think about it, uh, that a lot now of we've gone through that with a couple of our you know major league level uh partners that we work with when Snapchat comes out mm -hmm. and there's or whatever the next thing is is sometimes it's advantageous to be last um, sometimes it's it's better to be first and understanding of kind of the the cycle of that on the digital universe and and, and that I think we have a really good handle on that I think the bears um, example really helped me on a first person and I would say this too also communicating that to the owner and the CEO of when you need to move fast, when you need to be more methodical and surgical in the approach and, and what the what the difference could be. And I think, um, I think that's really helped because you look back and you're like, why wouldn't you have a website? Well, there was other priorities, you know, that they had at the time in the same way of like, why doesn't a team have a Snapchat page or, you know, or filter or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And I think those are timeless lessons where history repeats itself. But the, um, you know, I guess the, you know, the headlines are just a little bit different, but the framework and the approach and the process is the same. Right. And that's left you better prepared to uh, address the next one as it comes along. And you can borrow from what you've learned from the past stuff and and I would think give you a lot of confidence to okay we're going the right direction with this it may not be a grand slam but it'll this is this is the way we should should go with it right yeah absolutely and we there's a there's one tenant that we really subscribe to. Um, we have a great partnership with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and uh, Len Komarowski is the CEO of the Cavs. And actually, ironically, uh, back in my early team marketing report days, Len ran marketing for a minor league hockey team. Mm -hmm. And you know, of, of that value of thinking about 20 years ago, giving him the respect at um, where he was at to where he is now, you know, those are deep relationships that are rooted in, um, again, relationships, uh, you know, rooted in that trust and, and that long-term thinking. He says something that I, I share with team owners and I think is very appropriate all the time. He doesn't think of it as a digital strategy. It's just a strategy. You know, we've gotten to that point. Right, yeah. And I really like that because what it's really taught me is, I think 20 years ago, well, we've got to have our dot-com strategy and then we've got to have our offline strategy. And in the end of the day, 
it's still a fan engagement, still ticket sales, still merch, revenue generation, sponsorship, et cetera. You're just using that as another conduit. Um, it's almost like an electronic stadium if you think about it that way. Mm-hmm. And I think there's um, there's some really good lessons there that not to try to carve that out as digital only, but the end of the day, we're all connected to our iWatches, iPhones, laptops, whatever it is, that that's just an extension of who we are. And I really admire the way Len and, and the Cavs approach that of looking to put digital into their strategy rather than to audible it, if you will. So from, uh, from the Bears job, then where did you go from there? I actually went back to Team Marketing Report. Uh, Team Marketing Report then was sold... Um, from the founder to another individual. And I actually really missed what you said, too, of after we launched chicagobears.com. And again, it's actually really interesting of never really having to interview for a job. Uh, The new owner approached me about coming back to be the publisher, to run Team Marketing Report. And I talked to Ted Phillips about it, who is my boss, the CEO at the Chicago Bears. And I think of your boss as a as a mentor, you know, especially in your 20s, and being personally invested in you. I explained what the opportunity was, the ability to learn, and and now take this digital um, expertise to another level. And versus we had launched the bear site, and and he just looked at me and he said, um, "You'll always have a place here," um, but you know, I would be doing a disservice if I didn't say this was a better opportunity for you really? at this time. And and I think about that of, again, another one of those moments in reflecting of was smart enough to have a great personal relationship with Ted that transcended a direct report kind of relationship. And, and I think about the value. We work very closely with the Bears um, to this day. I've actually at, been able to add more value to Ted's tenure as a you know, is now a, a partner through our relationship, um, you know, working with them. Than had I stayed in there to bring other perspectives in, and I think it was really rooted in the fact that I was just so humbled and and probably didn't even realize like how wonderful that was, and it just showed me actually made me want to stay because he was putting <laughs> right. my best interests above his own. Uh, but I think it's a good reminder of the character of the people that you um, are fortunate to either surround yourself with or, you know, that are lucky enough to just come into your life. So um, went back to Team Marketing Report, took them kind of in the digital age. And ironically, um, that's when Sports Business Journal was launched. And we had a great working relationship with them. And I started writing a column for Sports Business Journal um, parallel to that on just revenue generating strategies. And that was another wonderful opportunity to learn um, and attract knowledge and be a connector um, of people, ideas, um, innovations. And again, I think the biggest thing for me was learning from a minor league team as well as a world-class team and understanding that the same headaches, the same problems, um, the dollar signs, the commas are a little bit different. Um, But tactically, really studying the blocking and tackling of what we do um, was, again, a wonderful opportunity to be able to to learn and maybe see the world a little bit differently. When you did that, I remember I would always, I'd always read your columns or your uh, pieces, um, and I was always... Still, I'm fascinated too that how much content um, topics you had, 
Uh, how, how much of that, out of curiosity, did you generate and come to them with? How much of it was, you know, their editors maybe coming back and saying, hey, can you give us a take on this? Um, so I, I actually probably had, again, Sports Business Journal early on in their iteration. Um, John Ginzali was the um, editor-in-chief then. Um, I ran fairly independent um, on ideas and topics um, that I got it to do within the framework of had to have an educational component. So you'd break down an idea, a business problem, and how that team or organization was solving it. There's one exception, um, <laughs> and um, uh, this will be a good life lesson of uh, not being somebody that complains or, or throws um, random ideas out. but. Uh, we had a, a, a staff meeting. We would have these annual, all the columnists got together. It was a real interesting group of Bud Collins, oh, um, right. you know, wrote a, wrote a column, um, you know, I mean, just some fairly high profile people. And, and they were like, what's, what's, a, what's a vision that you guys have or what's an idea that you see that no one else does? And I literally said, I go, you know, I was at a marathon and I think that Marathon sponsors do a horrible job of understanding who their target audience is. They can't decide if it's the runners, the participants, et cetera. So I didn't realize that some people on the staff were very passionate marathoners. <laughs> um, and if you know a runner, right, they, they, it's, a, it's an endorphin high. It's a, it's a secret club. So I got a call from John Ginzali, and he's a pretty gruff you know, he's almost like that character from Spider-Man, the, uh, you know, Parker, get in here, Miguel. So he's like, Miguel, I got a great idea for you. Um, I need you to run the New York City Marathon and write it from the first-person perspective of how sponsors interact with you. Um, I signed you up for the New York City Marathon. You've already been signed up. And you can expense one pair of running shoes. I'm not a runner. So, right? But so I think he was kind of testing me. So I ended up writing, um, I ran, I trained, um, you know, and it was a lesson in like stubbornness and like arrogance, right? Is that uh, probably a good parallel? And I ran the race and I get to mile one, Dunkin' Donuts is there and they had a thirst station set up, but it was hot coffee. And I got like my little reporter's microphone and I'm like, horrible activation <laughs> who wants you know hot coffee at mile one blah 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 and I got to like mile eight or nine and I'm in my zone I'm feeling okay I've done my training you know okay I'm actually going to do this and there was a herd of runners that were all in red shirts that came and brushed up against me kind of like you know they didn't really move or they just were running straight and I got behind them and I noticed that they had shirts that said Avis, official partner in New York City Marathon, we try harder. And I'm sitting here thinking like, hor like horrible activation, you know, what, whatever it was. Another group of Avis runners came by. This time I stepped to the side, I'm running, and I talked to them and I said, you know, this is like the second time you guys almost ran me over. And they were like, well, why? And then they're like, well, we're, we're sponsors of the race. So I'm thinking entitlement, you know, and just <laughs> what's going on here. And they said, well, let's face it. We're a rent-a-car company and rent-a-car companies have a bad reputation. You know, they're, they're, um, you know, just, just by doing what they do. Um, and our value proposition is we try harder. So each there's 50 different groups of us 
and the person in the middle of our circle right here, and we're having this conversation as we're running oh, right. um, a race. Person in the middle, um, we're from Rhode Island. She's legally blind, and we're all Avis employees that are trying harder oh, for wow. her as a storytelling opportunity. So here I am running the race, and um, you know I got a little emotional. And I also really understood another level of sports sponsorship storytelling that here's a company that is using a platform to not tell a story about a rent-a-car company, but to show that they try harder. And if they have that much compassion for, um, um, you know, helping a member of their community and they activated that brilliantly in 50 different states, they all had a wounded veteran with one leg that they were helping you know, to be able to do that, ended up writing one of my favorite columns for Sports Business Journal, and it's a, it's on the archives. You looked up my last name in Avis. It's a good read of storytelling a brand promise versus trying to storytell a product. And, and I use the phrase, um, you know, now in reflection of great example of what I like to call the double bottom line, where Avis had a trackable ROI of return on uh, investment, but they also hit it out of the park on the other side of the double bottom line, um, return on inspiration. Mm. And I love that. And to think that I learned that lesson um, of a rent-a-car company at mile 10 of the New York City Marathon was a wonderful opportunity. So uh, as much as I was kicking and screaming when I had to run the marathon, <laughs> I was uh, really grateful uh, you know, for John forcing me to run that race to have that moment. Now, did you, from there, do I have the timing right that you ended up uh, going to Northwestern? Was that the next step from that second gig at TMR? Yeah, so um, uh, people that are naturally curious probably are um, always love to teach. I think uh, great teachers learn, you know, more. So um, I had always taught during that time that I wrote all the digital um, uh, work, I taught a class at Arizona State. And in their MBA program, uh, for a Chicago guy, it was a great gig. It was a one-week, all-intensive course uh, in Tempe, Arizona. January, sign me up. And I did that um, for three or four years. And then Northwestern was given some serious thought to launching a program. So um, was incredibly proud that, as a, again, Chicago guy, um, is very much a um, you know more of a um, a part-time commitment with some you know very um, strategic responsibilities of setting the curriculum. Um, what's the policy to to be able to get in? So I really learned you know that and helped launch that program, uh, and they gave me a great um, flexibility to teach a class that I still teach at Northwestern. Uh, it's called non-traditional revenue generation. And it's the really the core belief that any sports organization at any level, um, if they pause and they think a little bit differently, there's a path to incremental revenue. Mm -hmm. So that's how we really design that course. And the, the course is somewhat of like, this is my life, because we trace back through a lot of those examples and learnings. Um, and then we actually do a real uh, project where we bring in executives from the team and they have to present their vision in front of a Ted Phillips, in front of a Jim Phillips at Northwestern. Um, we've brought in um, C-level executives from minor league baseball, um, San Diego Padres, et cetera, to be able to do it. And uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. 
That's awesome. So you did that for um, for a couple of years, and then the Padres gig came up yep. from there. Yeah. So were you writing your you're writing your book while you were doing the stuff with Northwestern too? Yeah. Is that exactly? Um, Dugout Wisdom. I think I mentioned that earlier, but find it on Amazon. People Dugout Wisdom by Dan McGalla. But so you did that both of those. Probably how that worked as a part time. You said kind of a responsibility with Northwestern. So then. Um, if we have time, we'll come back and talk about the book. But the Padres gig, again, you've talked about sometimes it's you don't have to interview for the jobs. I'm imagining that something like that happened yeah. in that case. Yeah, so um, you know, Josh Kreitzer and I had started um, PCG um, around 2008 um, you know, or so, and um, um, we, um, we were a two-man shop. Um, right. You know, it's a challenge, right? Um, uh, being an entrepreneur, being a tactician, and being able to grow and, and do that. Um, had a great relationship um, with Tom Garfinkel, uh, who's another great mentor. He's, Tom is now the CEO of the Miami Dolphins. Yeah. And we had done some project work with the Arizona Diamondbacks, and Tom was the COO of the Diamondbacks. And what happened was um, Tom entrusted us when he became the CEO or the the president of the Padres in spring of 09, could we take a look at the organization? And specifically, um, Padres, I think, were in that five, seven-year itch of the new building. What could you do to reimagine? We worked on it um, and then gave them a a little bit of a blueprint of what that could be. uh, we were still a smaller shop here. And what Tom said was, would you ever want to execute this vision? This would be the time, you know, to do it. So um, had to work through um, the, you know, the really the partnership here. Um, was able to, never sold my place here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And really, again, relationships of the trust with Tom, the trust with Josh as a partner, Um, and the ability to then go execute that vision. At that level, it felt very much like the right thing to do. Um, And and it was just like an awesome experience. I was there for 24 months. Um, We significantly reduced the partners while increasing revenue was part of the vision. And and, um, as a Chicago guy, it's really interesting. The... um, the general manager of the Padres is Jed Hoyer and um, you know now the GM of the Cubs and Jed and I I think for the first 60 days we were out there we lived in the hotel together um, and just really became friends and I think even to understand um, how the right side of the hall better connects with the left in that moment in time was a real special learning experience. And and that ability to do it and see things more organizationally has really helped us in our day-to-day here of what we do. Um, we work a lot with the Cubs now, too. And, and I think even the learning of integrating with uh, what Colin Faulkner's team does with Jed and understanding that, right. that's sometimes there's a wall that's there and it's unintentional. Oh, sure. um, but I thought in San Diego, we did a brilliant job of being organizationally focused. Um, and it really had kind of a, a, a fun startup mentality. Um, the list of alumni that we had together, um, there's folks that are running the Kansas City Chiefs, the New Orleans Saints, Madison Square Garden, Staples Center, the Cubs. Paul Podesta's office was right oh, next right. to mine. Uh, he's now, you know, running the Browns draft. And um, it was just a real interesting 
intellectual experience that I think Tom, uh, to his credit, gave us a ton of freedom uh, to really kind of challenge the core tenets of our business and mm-hmm. do things uh, differently. Well, yes, and Tom's a very... I've worked with him when he was with the Dolphins, and Jeremy Walls went with him to uh, chief revenue officer. Great guys, smart guys, and transferring from baseball to football, some of that intelligence to the point of like Jed and uh, the story that Theo Epstein talks about, about you know crossing the bridge between the data guys and the old school scouts that finding that blend of those things, just like you're talking about the marketing versus the ticket selling versus the game ops and all those things, they need to be working together and you end up with the you know one plus one plus one equals six or something. Why the heck come back from San Diego? You know, we talk about a Chicago guy, how great was it to be at ASU yeah. and now you're living in San Diego. What are you doing coming back here? Uh, Josh did a f- phenomenal job of growing the business um, when I was gone. So it was humbling to... <laughs> To kind of see uh, to see that happen, but I think we had a good compounded interest of um, what was happening here, um, you know, and, and you know, I think to launch a business and go from survival mode right to um, start to get to thriving is um, is a challenge, and and I think the combination of what was started before I went to California. Um, and also then what, what he was able to do in that time that I was gone, um, you know, really um, was, was part of that foundation. The other thing that was really interesting was um, prior to going to San Diego, one of the more unique assignments we got was to work with um, Cricket Australia. And Cricket is, um, on an international scale, it's the second largest sporting economy behind what we would call soccer in, yeah. in America. And Cricket Australia, uh, we had worked on um, a number of strategies for them. And, and one of them was this concept of developing a new league that would, for I guess from a U.S. parallel, would be the equivalent of if the NFL launched Arena Football League, but Tom Brady and Peyton Manning played in the league. That was kind of the vision for it. And I'm in my office in San Diego, and I got a call from the CEO of Cricket Australia, James Sutherland, and he said, uh, hey, like we got approval. We're going to do this. We need you to come out. And so talked to Tom in the same vein that I talked to uh, Ted Phillips. And wouldn't you know it, it was like history repeating itself. Uh, Tom wanted what was best for me and my, my fiance at the time. And it was an ability to come back to Chicago um, and leave with incredible support and friendship from the Padres and knowing that I had proved that model. Um, and then now the ability to launch a league in a sport I know really nothing about on the other side of the world um, just felt really right. So um, the combination of bringing that in as a new partner of ours, uh, Tom also entrusted us with a large piece of um, continuing to work for the Padres, but from afar. And um, I think the confidence level um, within this office just went to another level. So we were able to apply every basic tenant of our business with a blank canvas for a league and a country. Um, and, um, you know, we're six years later with that league. Um, we just hosted their CEO, Anthony Everhard, um, who's on the other side of the world, and right. he's become a really close friend. 
And we've built something really remarkable there. Um, it is now, on average, annual attendance, um, the number six league in the world. Oh, wow. So it's really worked. Um, and we've served as the team bow. And I like those dare-to-be-great situations where you can really um, think big, focus small. We like to say you find the extraordinary in the ordinary. And some of the things that we take for granted is um, we have a great team member here, Becca Hemby, and she talks a lot about start with the why. So we got to ask ourselves a question. Why would a fan come to this game? Why would a, a mom bring their kid? And we then identified what's for that answer. And something as simple as every child, if they want, can get an autograph with a player at every game. And we also have the road team sign autographs, too. Because if you look at it um, through the eyes of a child, we like to say we had the focus of a scientist and the wonderment of a child. But, you know, as a parent, uh, your eight-year-old kid does not care if he gets an autograph from a road player or a home player. It's a yeah. player. It's a touch point. Right. And those things started to matter. And the data is staggering. Um, year six, probably 25% of the audience um, are kids. And it has really become um, you know, almost a summer bucket list in Australia. And the NBA has been here. They've looked at it of kind of what did you do? How did you do it? And that, to me, with Tom's support, and then bringing it back, just another level of growth and understanding of um, you know, what makes our business so special, but then to do it on another unique canvas. Now, I know some of the tenants work across not just sports, but you know, entertainment probably in general, but there are some things that would certainly be unique to Australia and probably even different parts of Australia. How did you immerse yourself? Were you traveling there a lot and team traveling? Because it's just, like you said, it's the other side of the world. It's, it's nowhere close to a short flight or a cheap flight and you know, it would disrupt everything else you're doing with your business, basically. How did you accelerate that learning process? Uh, one, I got really good at uh, um, sleeping on airplanes. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's amazing. That flight doesn't seem as long as it once did, um, which is which is interesting. Those first couple of years, I probably went over there five or six times a year. Um, but also, too, the time difference is four o'clock in Chicago is probably eight a.m. in Melbourne. Um, it got really good. You could you could think about it. The advantage sometimes is your disadvantage. If you're the CEO of that league and you've got a team of people on the other side of the world that's committed to solving your business problems while you sleep. We got really good at it, um, and it was actually a really, in real time, a really fluid way to collaborate. But it was grounded in that personal trust, and then building something together uh, to uh, to be able to do it. Um, I actually think being naive and not knowing anything about the sport of cricket or really the country of Australia was a huge advantage. Because mm -hmm. what I find with a lot of the teams that we work with here, uh, they're so um, grounded in a hunch or their own perspective of the way things that have been done, they don't have an independent voice that's going to ask those questions to kind of right. challenge the status quo. So if anything, we've tried to bring the process of what we did with Cricket Australia to the Chicago Cubs, to the Cleveland Cavaliers, to Hendrick Motorsports, uh, to be able to allow them to have someone that's under their roof 
thinking on their best interests and on their behalf, but also with a lens of curiosity and wonderment uh, to be able to maybe find if there's a better way to do it. Well, that's that point of the focus of a scientist, the wonder of a child. Most of these guys here, well, the worry they were in Australia, if they've been in the sport for a while, the team level for a while, they're not, they don't have the wonder of a child, no matter how hard they try, because they're now, they've got so many things ingrained and so many things that's predetermined, basically, right? So... How do you do that? That it's it's got to be easier said than done. How do you help your brain think a little differently? Your teams think a little bit differently to do that. So there's there's two perspectives. There's the perspective of reinventing an existing process, and then there's inventing a new process. The reinventing of an of an existing process. I'll go back to Paul De Podesta when when he was at the Padres. The genius of Paul, um, forget about his math skills and just being incredibly intelligent, just a, just a great guy, was the first question that he asks when he's trying to solve a problem is, if you had to do it over again, would you do it the same way? And why? And what would you do different? Kind of, that's his core values. So think about that for any business problem, any, anything that exists within a team. I'll use the Kansas City Royals as an example of a of, you know, project we've been involved in. We asked them the question of what is an example of maybe a promotion? Every team's got one that's just kind of flat. It's not so bad that we need to kill it, but it's not good that we're all excited about it. And for them, it was um, they used to do this family of four, you know, four pack Sunday family days or something like that. Four tickets, four hot dogs, 40 bucks, whatever it is. Well, it's okay, something we do, but we just go and we just basically update the year and we repeat the same thing we did the year before. So what would you do differently if you do it over again? And we asked the question in the room, how many people in the room are in a family of four? And what we realized is (laughs) you're alienating 80% of the room. So why did we do it this way? The intent of doing a family-focused Sunday is a good idea, but the offer is wrong. So we need to reinvent that process. So what we ended up landing on was um, uh, Denny's. We were at a Denny's, and they had kids eat free on Sunday. And we talked randomly. Again, you're always learning. You're always curious. And we asked the waiter hey, like, what are Sundays like? And she's like, it's a madhouse. <laughs> she's like, there's so many kids in here. I hate it. Da, da, da. They don't tip, blah, blah, blah. And then I went and talked to the manager, and I was like, what are Sundays like? And he's like, it's our highest revenue day, and it's awesome. So the Royals changed it to Kids Eat Free Sunday. Instead of giving away a tchotchke giveaway item, kids get a certificate for a free child-sized hot dog, chips, Pepsi, et cetera. Um, their ticket sales full price went up. Um, their per caps went up because dad feels like he's getting a deal, so he's treating himself to an extra beer. And that's a perfect example of reinventing a process. And that every team should do that as part of their own health and wellness. And we, we do a ton of that, um, and we love it. And every situation is the same. Everyone is a little bit different based on the existing, you know, um, promotions that they're doing. What I would tell you on the inventing the process of doing it new is um, it's daunting because you feel like you're boiling the ocean. So we really try to think big, focus small. 
perfect example when we launched the Big Bash League in Australia. We really wanted to get the attention of kids and moms. So instead of asking um, the what of the idea um, and just trying to focus on that, we started with the process of why would a kid be excited about this new team that they've never heard of in their community? So we asked ourselves the question, if an eight-year-old kid owned this team, what would he do to generate enthusiasm from his friends? Mm -hmm. So simple, right? But that's the focus of a scientist and the wonder of a child. So one of the ideas that was generated from there was to run um, a kids' club promotion that if kids signed up for the kids' club, um, and parents obviously signing them up, you would be entered in a chance to win to have the star player drive you to school on the last day of school. And we did that with the team. Really think about this. Hobart, Tasmania, the Hobart Hurricanes, mm -hmm. the smallest market in Australia, literally on an island, had more kids club members than the Sydney team coming out of the gate. Wow. And what did it cost? A gallon, a couple gallons of gas to be able to do that. Captured it on video and the ability to do it. And I think that's the process of in, inventing those ideas yeah. and removing the fear of failure um, you know, from that, of uh, the ability to do it. The hardest part, I think, in both of those lessons is when you're changing culture or an innovative process, you have a tendency to also say why we shouldn't do it. Oh, Bob down the hall in operations is not gonna yeah. <laughs> not gonna like giving out these free food coupons um, or whatever that might be, and being prepared and creating a culture that's not afraid to fail, and the first instinct is to tell you what you love about the idea um, versus what you don't fuels more organizational goals rather than departments too, and we see that all the time. Well, how do you? You know, I'm sure you're, that's a mantra for you internally here. How do you, meaning building good culture, being positive, finding the good, inventing and reinventing, those different things, <clears throat> how do you make sure you keep your eye on that ball um, for your own team? Uh, because sometimes it's, you're pulled in so many directions and, and all. Uh, how do you find that balance and make sure it's not, you don't look back, uh, you know, six months, uh, a year down the road, and you're like, oh, geez, we got a mess here that we have to clean up in-house. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great 30. I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're, we haven't talked about it, but you're up to about 30 people working for this group now, right? So it's, it's not you and Josh anymore. It's quite a few people. So how, how do you do that? Well, and, and we've also got the complexities of multiple offices, too, yeah. um, which is... Um, which is, again, I, th I think there's an advantage in there, but it's also it's a, it's a challenge to be aware of. I think when we think about skill sets, um, process, and also culture and, and behavior, all of that is aligned. And whether it's working on a minor league hockey or an NHL team, the approach and the process is the same uh, to be able to do that. The unique thing is, is a lot of times... There's, there's a reminder that we've been in this room before. The names are a little bit different. Um, and, and we had a great assignment uh, a year and a half ago um, on behalf of the Indy 500, where it was very similar. Cricket Australia, right, was a very traditional brand that wanted us to really reinvent a vision for the next generation. 
the Indy 500 was heading into year 100 of the race, and they wanted to really own that moment in time. And what was really interesting was we were able to start that meeting with the uh, Indy 500 leadership and say, with great confidence and no hesitation, we've been in this room before, um, only that was at Cricket Australia. Um, and here's what we did, and here's the team of people that executed it, and here's what we learned that we would do a little bit better next time, and here's what we would bring. And they handshook and hired us on the spot. And it was really gratifying. Um, um, in May of this year, the SBJ Awards, it was really cool. The Indy 500 was named Sports Event of the Year. They sold out last year for the first time. And those kind of, we call them moments of truth, I think that is a good reminder of the power of the team and the horsepower that's here and the different skill sets. Like we've got an analyst that really drives kind of the data and insights We've got somebody from our innovation team, which is equal parts heart and art, um, you know, to compassion and creativity. And then we've got really a senior leadership structure that's connected to try to bring it all together that, um, you know, some remarkable things um, can happen, you know, on that. So I think that's, um, that's the commitment and, and ultimately goes back to the relationship. Like your job is to make that person better and you're almost like a coach and support for them right and so and we didn't even get into this and we're uh, taking up way more of your time than i said i would so make this the last the last question but because we haven't talked about a pcg property consulting group as that started and then sports desk was its own company right and then now you're as one what what's what is, tell us a little bit about Sports Desk and now how they're back together. I'm assuming the answer is because they're complementary, but can you break that down for people who don't know what they are? Sure. So, um, you know, PCG was our, call it traditional uh, consulting practice. And um, a lot of the examples would have fallen under there. We're, um, you know, in the early days, kind of an outsourced team bow, um, you know, for, for uh, the folks that would understand the team business operations within the NBA. Um, we have a great personal relationship, and now he's a partner in Eric Fernandez, who uh, managed all of AT&T's global sponsorships for 15 years, and naturally curious, right? Like, and Eric was, uh, in 2011, 2012, um, very um, interested in programmatic media, digital media as a vehicle for him to more strategically activate his team sports USOC partnerships. Mm -hmm. And and Josh and I really started collaborating with, um, with Eric around what would a chief revenue officer of a team use programmatic for and how would you monetize um, your fan base in unique ways. So we started developing some theories and took a, um, a leap of faith and invested in um, developing our own technology that allows us to buy our own media. We own our own trading desk um, and the ability to then aggregate data off of a, a team website and then manage a digital media strategy uh, for them. Um, we did a, a case study in um, Eric Nichols. And again, a lot of this actually is, is, is we're revisiting this was I'd been in this room before. It felt very similar to the Bears, that you had some wealth of knowledge 
you could apply it. You could ask the why, like Paul DePodesta would say, um, and, and how would you do it differently to, to reimagine what this could be? And uh, Eric Nichols from University of South Carolina entrusted us with $20,000 for a digital media campaign around season tickets. And we used the data to segment um, we thought the best fans based on online behavior would be young alumni, people that had recently graduated from South Carolina that lived within X amount of miles of the stadium, and then also young families in the area, whether they had an affinity for USC or not, or Southern Calipers, sorry, South Carolina um, or not, um, you know, and we would serve different media and different messaging. Well, off of that 20-some-odd thousand dollars, we sold $922,000 worth of season tickets without the use of... That's a good ROI. <laughs> yeah, that would have come a long way from not selling anything through that video game machine. And our, our eyes opened up, and then we started telling the story. And today, um, you know, it's a, it's a well-oiled machine with probably north of um, 200 sports properties that entrust us with using you know our digital products for data and analytics digital media and and better understanding who their fans are and then segmenting so it's an incredibly exciting time but what we realized and and, and I'll, I'll come full circle with what Len Komarowski touched us is we had separated the two and what we realized is as we look around the corner of the business it's uh, not a digital strategy it's just a strategy right. so the unification we're actually going to go through a rebrand of our organization to better tell our story moving forward but um, it's it's a real exciting time and I think when we're at our best we're again that heart and science of, of both of those two that we're using that creativity but we're also using the data and the digital media done very efficiently allows you to do a lot more um, uh, and be more efficient with it. Well, there's so much tools and data, technology, and that's what excites me. It's just I'm blown away every time, uh, you know, most of it goes over my head, but when I talk to either you or to Josh about what all you're doing and the opportunity that's there and that really nobody else is doing it and breaking down some of those walls, barriers, or whatever, it just seems like why wouldn't you do this? It's going to help you, whatever it is, sell more tickets. That's great. It's helping with, um, you know, overall awareness of team events. It's helping with validating sponsorships. I mean, it just seems like a no-brainer, and I, that's why obviously it's working well for you guys. That people are lining up to to get on board. So. Anyway, there's my sales pitch for PCG Sports Desk. I, hopefully Dan has my commission check in the mail tomorrow. But uh, anything else that we didn't cover? We've already had, we've gone over well over the hour mark, so I, I, I don't want to um, take any more of your time. But anything that we missed that you want to talk about? But I think uh, I was reminded, um, you know, one of, one of my final mentors that I would add is, um, is Mike Vack. And I got to know him, ironically, that day I gave the speech at the MLB meetings when, oh, I, really? when, I, when I was like Mike, with Mike Doogie Hauser. Um, I think he was like one of those old guys from the Muppets just like yelping at me, critiquing my um, you know, poor presentation skills at the time. But you know, Mike has, a, has really two um, you know, kind of mantras, if you will. And I think they're really apropos for this conversation and just a reminder of anyone that's in this business is 
Number one is every day is opening day. And if you really live your career like that and you wake up and you've got kind of the hairs on your arm, your neck are just excited, Mike is such an inspiration to me of living that and a career and a culture of that, that that belief that every day is opening day. And if you approach it like that, um, what a wonderful career path to have. But then Mike also has um, a, a book and uh, highly recommend it called Fun is Good. Yeah. And just a reminder of this business is supposed to be fun right. and fun is good. I think if you can weave any of those lessons that um, were shared today and just a reminder that whatever you do in life, if every day is opening day and you have some fun with it, um, I think uh, you know that's a great pathway to success. Well, that's a great way to, great spot to close on, Dan. Thank you very much for joining me today for the Painless Podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Dan as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Painless Podcast. Please rate, please review. All those things really help and are very much appreciated. Also, highly recommend for you newcomers, scroll back through the feed as well. 16 other outstanding guests so far. Check them out. And uh, if you got any feedback, any suggestions on guests, other ideas, sponsorship inquiries, any of that, anything else, send it on over to painlesspod at painless.network. And that's it for today. So until next time, it's Chris Hartwig saying, let's stay connected, friends. (laughs) 